So we're so delighted that you're here today, and uh, we're going to start a brand new series today called Finishers, and I'm just going to talk to you a little bit about what we're going to talk about today before I actually get into it. And the truth is, is that uh, it doesn't matter how you start, it matters how you finish. And so we're going we're gonna to be looking at Bible characters. Today we come to a fiery character by the name of John the Baptizer, and uh, he is going to be, it's going to be an amazing story, and uh, I hope that you just wrestle with God and, and really look in your own life. And, and we're also finishing, we're starting a, a, the last lap of Hope First. And so what we want you to do is we're asking you to finish well in Hope First. We want to press through the $6 million mark. We're close, but we're not there yet. So we need you to finish well. If you haven't started with us, you can jump in right now. And, uh, and uh, we just encourage you if, you, if you have completed your pledge, if you can, if you can exceed it, that'd be awesome because there's more work for us to, to do. So with that in mind, let's just look at uh, a section of Scripture today. It's found in Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to begin every session with this section of Scripture. So uh, I'm having difficulties with my iPad this morning, so I'm going to have to read it off the screen because sometimes when you get up here with your technology, it just kind of crashes. And so we're going to see how this service goes. I don't know what's in my notes yet. So, so let's just look at this passage. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the, to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down. Stop there for just a second. Let's talk about that. The Bible says that you and I are surrounded by these witnesses. Who are those witnesses? Those are witnesses that are found in Hebrews chapter number 11. And these are the people that were people like Abraham and Moses and all these men of faith and women of faith. And so because of those people, you and I, listen to this carefully, stand on their shoulders. So we are under obligation to finish well on their, for their sakes. Bottom line is that because we are surrounded with their witness, that you and I are compelled and we are, we are, we are encouraged to move on with this great, this great thing. And the truth is, is that we're supposed to take every weight that keeps us from finishing well and cast it off. Then the verse goes on to say this, especially the sin that so easily trips us up and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. So here's the deal. Listen to me very carefully. Thus sin, you see that word thus sin? You see that phrase thus sin? It's not talking about any sin here. It's talking about the sin of faithlessness. Hebrews chapter 11 is the idea of faith and the hall of faith and the people of faith. And now it says, therefore, you, you and me, you and me are supposed to strip off that lack of faith in our own life and run this last lap in our lives, wherever we're at, run the last lap with endurance and patience and power and finish well. It doesn't matter how you start as much as it matters how you finish. So that is so important. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at John the Baptist and, and start with this fiery character. John the Baptist is one of my favorite characters in the Bible because he is a tell-it-like-it-is guy. And uh, he's fiery and truthful and powerful. And so let me tell you a little bit about John because I think that, uh, that you need to understand who he was so you can understand what a powerful life message he had and how he had doubt in his life. So we're going to talk about that as well. So let me tell you a little bit about John. He was a player 
in a scandal in the Bible. Yes, he was a player in a scandal in the Bible. He had no sin. It wasn't that he had committed any sin, but he was in the middle of this horrendous scandal in the, in the New Testament times. He had, it had to do with King Herod. And so while Herod was married to his first wife, he began to take a liking, liking to his brother Philip's wife. In fact, he divorced his first wife, and he married his brother Philip's wife. She divorced Philip, and they got together, and they joined a union. And, and it, it, uh, the truth is, is that John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, he wasn't a Baptist by denomination, by the way. John the Baptizer comes along, and he points his finger at Herod in a non-judgmental, powerful, and awesome way and said, Herod, you can't do this. He calls him out. He calls the king out for his sin. And as a result, it landed him in a very precarious place, eventually led to having his head cut off. And uh, it is a story that is really powerful. So Herod then, John is put in prison. Herod is now tricked, tricked into cutting John the Baptist's head. And this is what happened. Uh, his wife had a daughter. And uh, they were all ripped off at John the Baptist for telling the truth. That's what was happening. And so mom talked her daughter into dancing before the king. And he was so impassioned. You understand what I mean by that? I'm, I'm trying to talk in R-rated language, but I'm trying to do it in a PG-13 audience. So, so the truth is, is that Herod was so, well, I just say it, lustful about this daughter that he makes this statement. He was ruling with his hormones, not his head. He makes this statement to the daughter, I'll give you anything you want up to half the kingdom. And so the daughter had already made an arrangement with mom saying, I want John the Baptist's head cut off. And that's exactly what happened. Herod was trapped. He didn't want to cut his, he, he liked John the Baptist. Just some weird kind of way he liked John the Baptist, but the truth is, is now he has to do what he committed with his mouth to do, and so he has the head of John the Baptist brought. Now, with that in mind, we're going to look at Mark chapter 6 for just a second because I want you to see, but I didn't make this up. This would be a great prime time, you know, 8 to 9 to 10 o'clock series on NBC. I'm just telling you, John the Baptist would be a great series of all that happened there, and uh, I'm sure that people even in the world would flock to it because it has all the elements of whatever you see on primetime TV. So just so you know, I'm not making this up, and just to encourage you to read your Bible because it's exciting and it's powerful and it's awesome, and I know you want to read your Bible, amen? amen? All right, so just so you read your Bible, let's start in Mark chapter 6, verse number 14. And this is what it said, Herod, the king, soon heard about Jesus because everyone was talking about him. This was after the fact. I mean, he's, he's reflecting back now on his decision to cut off John the Baptist's head. Herod, the king, soon heard about Jesus because everyone was talking about him. Some were saying this must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. That is why he can do such miracles. Others said he is the prophet Elijah. Still others said he is a prophet like the other great prophets and of the past, when Herod heard about Jesus, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has come back from the dead. Here's what happens to you when you commit sin. You become very crazy for a while. Now he's neurotic and he's saying, what did I do? John the Baptist is raised from the dead. Not true. This is just Jesus doing his work. But that's what he was thinking. So uh, then it tells us a story. For Herod had sent soldiers to arrest and imprison John as a favor to Herodias. 
She, ha she has been his brother Philip's wife, but Herod had married her. John had been telling Herod, it is against God's law for you to marry your brother's wife. So Herodias bore grudge against him, against John, and wanted to kill him, but without Herod's approval, she was powerless. So there's the story. So let's just back up the story just a bit. I told you the overview of the story. Now we're gonna look at the time when John the Baptist is in prison, what happened to his life. So John finds himself speaking for Jesus, speaking for God. He finds himself in prison. Now, when, now you would think that that'd be a horrible thing, right? I mean, what would you feel like? You're doing what's right. Have you ever thought this? God, why is it that I do what's right and things go wrong in my life? Anybody ever thought that besides me? You just do what's right, and you're trying to, you're trying to do the righteous thing, and, and all of a sudden it goes badly for you. And you could imagine the doubt that John the Baptist is now having because you've had those same doubts, right? You've had those same doubts about God. I'm doing what's right. I'm doing what's good. But yet I find myself in this struggle, and I can only imagine that struggle. And when we think of John the Baptist, we think about this. Think, you know, he was, he was Jesus' cousin. That's what we know about him from Scripture. We know that he was unusual. He was a mighty man of faith, a man who spoke and thousands of people came and repented of their sins. John the Baptist had that kind of power in his life. They, John spoke and thousands came into the River Jordan. He baptized them and they confessed their sins. And, they were, and John the Baptist is the guy that looked at Jesus one day coming down to the river and he looks at him, he points at him, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Points to Jesus and says, this is whom, this is whom we've been waiting for. And then he says, to, in another occasion, he says, I am not that guy, but he's the guy. I must decrease, he must increase. So John had it all together. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was this righteous man of God and thousands of people responded to his preaching with repentance. He was kind of dressed unusual. You know, he dressed in an unusual way. At least, at least in our culture, it would be kind of unusual to see a John the Baptist-type personality step into our auditorium. You know, he was you know, just a wild kind of man. But in his day and his time, it wasn't that unusual. The way he was dressing was exactly the way Elijah the prophet dressed. He was sending a message. And all of Israel knew that message because Elijah was associated with the coming of Messiah. So John now comes along and he's dressed just like Elijah and he has, this, he has a kind of an unusual diet, but it wasn't unusual because he was a Nazarite. He had this Nazarite vow. He was doing exactly what God had wanted him to do. And uh, the fact was is that he was not only representing Elijah, but he was also associating with the poor. That's what his dress did. It associated himself with the poor. So he proclaimed that Jesus was the Lamb of God who came into the world to take away the sins of the world, and now he finds himself in prison and uh, with rumors about the fact that he's waiting his execution, and, uh, and he starts to doubt. John the Baptist, this man of faith, finds himself in a very hard place because he's identified Jesus had faith in Jesus, but now he's starting to wane. He's starting to wonder, is this really the Messiah? Is this really the Messiah? So we pick up that text in Matthew chapter number 11. Let me show you that. So John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard all about the things the Messiah was doing, so he sent his disciples. John had a following. He sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? 
wow. This is the same guy that said, that's him. I'm confident of it. And, and pointed to Jesus. And many, at least several of John's disciples became disciples of Jesus. And now John's in prison. And he's going to his disciples. I, I'm confused. I don't know. I'm, he's having this lapse of faith in his life. So here's what I want you to hear me say loud and clear. If John the Baptist is not exempt from doubts, then neither am I. And I'm going to be honest with you here today, not like I, like, not like I lie to you all the time, <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to be honest with you right now, uh, just so we're very clear. I've had doubts too. Because here's my contention. I believe that I cannot have faith outside of the context of doubt. If I don't have doubt, there's no faith. Do you all understand that? That was good, right? So because, because I'm going to have doubt, I know I'm going to have doubt. I, you know, I, I always question the person. I, I'm sorry to be judgmental, but I'm going to be judgmental for just a moment, and then I'll be back. I always doubt the person who never has doubts. I always wonder what in the world's going on with you. How, why are you lying? Why are you not telling the truth? What kind of, what kind of lies are you telling yourself? Because the reality is, is that we all, we all have doubt. And doubt is what causes us to grow. And that's exactly what happened in John the Baptist's life. He had this doubt. Doubt is a human condition. You know, here's, here's the reality of it. Tell a man that there are 300 uh, million stars in the universe and he'll believe you. Tell them there's wet paint on a bench and he'll have to go up and touch it to see for himself, right? That's the nature of doubt. But faith is the cure for doubt. But faith isn't what we think it is. Max Lucado says this, faith is not the belief that God will do what you want. That's how we normally associate faith. Faith is the belief that God will do what is right, even if it costs me, even if John the Baptist loses his head, even if I lose my head. Faith is the, is the ability to say, whatever happens, I know that God is in control and that this was his will for my life. He's gonna do what's right. So, what do you do when life throws you a curveball or a slider? What do you do? Because that happens in life. That happens. You're not exempt from that. And so when you and I find ourselves in that place, what is it that you and I are supposed to do? That's an interesting question. I think first and foremost, you need to recognize that you are not alone. Sometimes we isolate ourselves because we're having doubts. We don't want to tell anybody we're doubting. We're having doubts along the way, and, and because that's not cool, you know what I mean? Because that's not faith-based, because that's not, you know, I, you know I, my reputation might be marred just a little bit, so sometimes we come along and we have doubts, but, that, but sometimes the church isn't a place where we can say, hey, I'm doubting, doubting without getting the heck beat out of us, without, you know, 20 Pharisees jumping on you and saying, how dare you doubt? I'm just gonna tell you, that's the reality. That's, that's where we live. That's the reality of how church sometimes works. It's not right. It's not, it's not righteous. But that creates a culture now where I can't admit honestly and up front that I'm having some serious doubts about what Christ has done in my life. I have doubts about myself. I doubts about whether I'm really a child of God or not. So the question that I want to answer for just a few minutes is if John the Baptist were resurrected from the dead sent to Reno, Nevada, sent to Grace Church, and he was speaking to us today, what would John the Baptist say to you? What would he say about your doubts 
How would he say that he conquered his? He ended well. He ended well. He didn't, re- he didn't, uh, he didn't uh, repent of his, of his accusations against the king. He let them, you know, he, he ended up dying. All he had to do was say, hey, change my mind. Probably wouldn't have got his head cut off. But he didn't do that. He ended well. So what would John the Baptist say to you and I today if he were here today? So I think, this is my belief, is that I think he would echo the words of Jesus. That's what I think. So let's pick up the text in Matthew chapter 11, verse 4. This is what uh, Jesus, this is what Jesus says. Jesus told them, go back to John. John sends the disciples, remember? His disciples. Ask Jesus, are you the Christ? So John now, or Jesus now, is answering the question. Jesus told them, go back to John and tell him what you have heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. And he added, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. So how then do I finish well? These are the words of Jesus. So bottom line is, is that what happened to John is that he took his eyes off Jesus. That's what Jesus is telling the disciples. Go back. Go back and tell John, who is sitting in prison, that you've witnessed my works, that you've seen the deaf hear and the blind see and the dead raised to life. You've seen these mighty works. So he's saying to John, get your eyes off yourself and stop feeling sorry for yourself. Now let me ask you a question. Anybody here ever feel sorry for themselves? (laughs) Anybody here ever not feel sorry for yourself? Okay, so I'm just saying most of us here in the same boat, we have a pity party. You know, it's a huge pity party. We invite all our friends to feel feel sorry for ourselves and for us, and and that's how it normally works. We try to get a, a host of cheerleaders because we're feeling sorry for ourselves, but I'm telling you that never works. There's never enough cheerleaders. There's never enough. So what do I do when I find myself in a position of doubt? The first step, the hardest step, the most difficult step is to take my eyes off of myself and put them on the works of Jesus Christ. So what is the major work that Jesus Christ did? What is, what is my whole faith tied to? The answer to that question is the resurrection from the dead. Jesus, when he came up out of that grave, made every promise a yes. So how do I know that Christianity is true? The answer is, very clearly, it is true because of the resurrection. And Paul said it this way. He said, if the resurrection did not happen, then my preaching is in vain and that your faith is vain if the resurrection did not happen. So I have to go back in the moments of my doubt and I have to ask the question, is the resurrection true? I've got to get my eyes off of myself and onto Jesus. Somehow, some way, I've got to find the discipline to stop feeling sorry for myself and start looking at Jesus and looking at his works. And if his works are true, then his promises are true. And if his promises are true, then this story ends well for you. Right? This story ends well for you if all the promises of God are true. I, I'm, I'm just saying that you look and you just you, you you look and see what Jesus is doing. He is working in the world. When you have your eyes on yourself and on your problems, you are going to miss what God is doing. You're going to miss it. You're going to miss it completely. And we tend to see ourselves. We tend to see ourselves at the center of, of the universe, right? We do. 
We've been trained that way. We've been discipled that way. We've been disciplined that way. It's hard for us to break away and not see ourselves at the center of the universe. It's kind of like this. There was one cold winter's day, a, a crowd of people stood in front of a pet shop window and watched a litter of puppies snuggling up to each other. And one woman laughed and said, what a delightful picture this is of brotherhood and fellowship. Look at how these puppies are keeping each other warm. And at surface look, you would say, yeah, that's awesome. That is true. These, all these puppies are snuggling together to keep each other warm. But there's this man next to this woman who said, uh, no, ma'am, they're not keeping each other warm. They're keeping themselves warm. They don't snuggle. You don't snuggle up to keep others warm. You snuggle up because you're cold. And so I think that's how you and I work. We tend, we tend to look at a very self-oriented world, and we ask the question, what's in it for me, all the time. Without saying those words, that's what we really do. So let me, let me take just a moment, and let me just give you, you know, just to be fair to the other side of the issue. I, let's say that you want to live that way. You want to live a self-dominated world, in a self-dominated world, and you want to find a way that you can be as miserably, miserable as you possibly can be. So let me see if I can help you do that, okay? So here's, here's how it happened. To be miserable, you need to think about yourself, talk about yourself, use the word I as many times as you can in any given sentence when you're talking to anybody, listen greedily to what people say about you, expect to be appreciated, be suspicious, be jealous, envious, be sensitive to slights, get your feelings hurt often and easy, never forgive a criticism, trust nobody, put yourself... Uh, Trust nobody but yourself. Insist on consideration and respect. Demand respect from other people. Sulk if people are not grateful for you and the favors shown to them. Never forget a service you have rendered. Uh, shirk your, your duties if you can and do as little as possible for others. And I promise you, if you do that, I promise you a money-back guarantee, you will have the most miserable life you could ever experience. So if that's what you want, that's what you should do. But here's what I've discovered. Listen to this carefully. God sends no one away empty except those who are full of themselves. Right? God sends no one away empty except people who are full of themselves. And the biggest problem that I have is being full of myself. So if I have something to repent of, it's that. Because we all, we're all in the same boat and being full of myself then creates doubts, and the, the way that God has ordained it is I need to take my eyes off myself and put them on God. The second thing that I would say to you is you've got to know his promises. If you're going to not doubt, you have to know his promises. Jesus says, blessed are those who will not fall away. How is it that I don't fall away? I don't fall away when I understand the promises of God, when I get the reality of his promises to my life. That's when I don't fall away. So, let me see if I can unpack it for you this way. Have you ever flown standby? How many here have flown standby? Isn't that the most miserable experience in the world? I mean, come on now, let's talk about it. You're sitting in the seat, you know, you're sitting in the wannabe seats, you know, you're, 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 and you're hoping somehow, someway, somebody's plans have changed, and now you're going to get on this flight, and, and I'm just saying it's a, pretty, it's a pretty miserable place to be. Possibility, but no guarantee. That's a pretty miserable place to be. Possibility, but no guarantee. Oh, to be numbered among the confirmed, right? You want to have a confirmed seat, to own my seat, to, to have a departure time seat. How can you rest if you aren't assured passage 
in the final flight home. I mean, it's a miserable place. I've done it many times where I have just, uh, you know, you're biting your nails until they call your name. So with God, what you want to do is you want to be in a confirmed seat, right? I've got to know his promises, and I've got to know his promise in particular about eternal life. So I want you to look me in the eyes right now, and I want to ask you a question, and I want you to be able to answer it before God, not before me. Are you on a confirmed seat to heaven? Do you know beyond any doubt that if you were to die today, you'd go to heaven? You've got to settle that. You got to get that issue settled in your life because when you you're you're just like you're like standing flying on standby until then you're going if you think if this is how you're thinking why well, I hope I've lived a good enough life I'm telling you you haven't you've got to come to terms with the fact that you are a sinner separated from God repent of that and turn completely over to God where you're counting on nothing else but the blood of Christ to send you to heaven and if you cannot say that I'm not condemning you I'm simply saying Let's get you on the right seat. Because if that's where you are, if you don't have, if you don't have a no-so salvation, you're not going to be able to claim any of the other promises of God. And as a result, there's going to be, your life is going to be filled with doubt and insecurity. Step number three is simply this. You've got to step into God's work. Step into God's work. And here's where we're going to get, I'm going to get a little personal with you. And uh, I'm going to stretch you a bit, even if you don't want to be stretched. I'm going to put you on the rack and stretch you just a shade. So, uh, so let's talk about what it means. If I'm doubting God, what should I do? I should step into God's work. I shouldn't step away from it. That's going to create more doubt. I should find out what God is doing and step into that. So let me ask you this question. Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Do you believe that? How much? How much do you believe in it? Do you believe in it enough to show up here once in a while? Is that how much you believe? Do you believe in it enough to just come and sit, at the, you know, sit in a seat and stare at the back of some, somebody's head and, and then walk out uh, you know, miserable and, you know, or, or a checklist of, you know, I just did my thing? How much do you believe? Enough to serve God even when it's inconvenient? I mean, I'm talking about stepping in to serving God, and I'm just going to tell you, showing up to church isn't serving God. It's just not. And if you think it is, you're sadly mistaken. So when I, if I want to have an antidote to doubt in my life, i got to step in and experience. There's nothing like experiencing the presence and the power of the Spirit on your own life in doing God's work that will give you a sense of assurance that is unparalleled. You can't get it any other place when the work of the Spirit is happening inside of your life. So you step in. And I mean, this, I mean truthfully, you know, I, I'm just saying that I, my guess is, is that a good portion of this crowd today has settled for less than what God has for your life. Settled for just sitting. And I'm just going to tell you, Christianity has never been designed, ever been designed as a spectator sport. You know, last night I went to I went to Nevada's basketball game, their you know their their preseason basketball game, and I I'm going you know and, I, and I'm I'm just I'm I'm going to be honestly I'm just there as a fan, I'm there as a spectator. I have no responsibility. It's so comfortable. If they lose, it's not on me. You know I can you know I can be an armchair coach and I can do all those things. But if they if they lose, they won by the way. But if they lost, I'm, I just go home and go wow I would have coached that differently. You know what I mean? 
If they would have just called on me in the stands, I could have, I could have, I could have gotten my uniform on and I could have come back and I could, I could have won the game. How about that? I'm just saying Christianity has never meant for you to sit in the stands. It's meant for you to be on the court, in the game, playing as hard as you can play until you hear the trumpet. That's how Christianity is designed to be. If you know who you are in Christ, that's exactly what you do. There will always be a reason not to. There will always be an excuse. You'll, you'll be at a station of life. There will always be some reason that you can't jump in the game. But I'm just telling you, if you want to get rid of doubts, there's no greater way than for you to step into the game and experience the presence and power of the Holy Spirit and know that God has used you in some way, in some fashion, every time you do it. Step number four is this, is be steadfast even when you doubt. I have questions. I don't have all my questions answered. I have a lot of doubt in my life. I have a lot of things that I'm wondering, God, why are you doing it this way? I mean, questions are, are natural, aren't they? I mean, my wife has questions all the time that I can't answer. I'm just going to tell you. I'm just going to be transparent here. That she has questions that I can't answer. Somebody will text me and say, so-and-so's in the hospital. My wife will say, well, how long are they going to be in there? And I'm going to go, I go, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I, they're in the hospital. Who's the doctor? I don't know who the doctors. Is, they, is, is this person seeing a specialist? I don't know. Are they going to be off work long? I don't know. I don't know. Any guys have their wives that ever do that with you as well? <laughs> Ask you questions that you cannot answer. I'm just going to speak on half of all men. We don't have the answers. We don't have. You can keep asking, but we don't have the answers. And here's what else I want you to know. Listen to me carefully, is that I have a lot of questions to God, and I just get to stare down when I ask him. <laughs> They're just questions that I don't know, and I've asked God over and over, and repeatedly there's been silence as if God appears to not care. But here's the reality. When I step to the other side, I'm not even going to care what the questions are. You know, we have this idea that somehow God's going to answer all our questions. He's not going to have to. It's going to be perfect. There's no more questions. What's, you know what's good about heaven? There is no more questions unanswered, and you won't be asking questions like, is my dog going to be in heaven? You won't, I mean, you just won't be asking those questions anymore along the way. It's just not going to happen. Number five, you got to be courageous. If you're going to, if you're going to face doubt, you got to do it courageously. So there's some things in the Christian life that just require me to be courageous. When I was a senior in college at Nevada, I, well, when I was at Nevada, my seven-year career there at Nevada, when I was there, I put, taking, taking, put off taking speech 113 till I was the last semester in college. Because here's the irony of it. <laughs> this is so funny. I was terrified of public speaking. I was just absolutely terrified of public speaking. I just, and I kept putting it off and putting it off and putting it off until I had no choice. I mean, I can't get this paper to say I graduated unless I take the class. And I wish I could tell you, I wish I could tell you that it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be, because it was. <laughs> it was everything I dreaded. But here's what I want you to hear me say. There's sometimes you just have to put your big boy pants on. You know what I mean? 
There's sometimes you just have to put your big boy pants on, pull those up, big, big girl pants on, and pull them up, strap them on, and do whatever God is asking you to do. There's just times when what you need is courage. And courage isn't the absence of fear or conflict. It is just courage to do what is right. So my question to you today, my question to you today is what do you need, what is your next step that you've been putting off? That's for me, I'm not here. <laughs> what is the next step? What is the next step? By the way, when your phones go off, I just go longer. <laughs> I'm just kidding, just kidding. What? I can't help myself sometimes, I'm sorry. What is your next step? There always is the next step. What is yours? What do you have to put your big boy pants on to, to do? Whatever that is, make a decision today that you're gonna do it. Just make, your, make a decision. There's always, there will always be doubts. So I, I wanna end our time together by, by simply this. There was a time in my life, many of you know this story, that I had this major illness. And um, I mean, I almost died from this major illness. I didn't realize how sick I was until I actually got better. And... Um, it was horrible, and I had serious, I was off month, work for six months here at Grace, and I didn't know that I was ever going to come back. I didn't. I didn't have any idea whether I was going to make it back or not, and so in that process, I'm going to tell you, I doubted. I had this doubt. God, where are you? I mean, I've served you all my life, all my adult life. I've served you. I'm asking you to do something, and and uh, I'd like you to heal me. You certainly have the power to do it. And God chose not to. He sent me on a journey that lasted six years before I would find my healing. And in the, me in the, in the meantime, every, in, that, in, the, in that process of that journey, I had doubts. But here's, here's how I resolve those doubts. Then, I don't have as many doubts about that as I did because I'm on the other side of that illness, but here's how I resolve those doubts in my life, I just simply said, you know, what if God is not true? What if he's not? What if all the Bible's a hoax and Jesus is a hoax? What if that's true? I had this conversation out loud in this auditorium when it was completely empty with God. So God, what if you're not true? What if all this that I preach, what if I'm preaching a lie? What if? And here's what I concluded. This is what God said to me, actually. Not audibly, but in my heart. This is what God said to me. So what if it's not? What if it's not true? What is the consequences of you believing it? The answer is nothing. Because you die and you're dead. <laughs> you're gone. You're back into the cosmos, you know, whatever. But what if it is true? What if it is true? Then everything you've done matters and everything you're going to do matters. So I concluded in that darkest hour of my life to trust in a God that I could not see for the hope and truth that he would reward what I could not see in the midst of my doubt. That's faith. That's faith. And you may not be in a dark place today, but someday you will be. And I pray and trust that you'll listen to what I have to say because it might make a world of difference at some point along the way in your journey.
Shall we pray? Father, thank you for this day. I pray, God, that you'll take my words and use them for your honor, that you'd use them to strengthen people, that you'd use them, God, to, to glorify your name. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.